Every week, the Orange Fizz team breaks down the five most pressing questions about Syracuse athletics. Holy cow, what a big-time defensive play! No holds barred. I paid the fool. It's the Fizz Five. Five! Happy New Year, everyone. We kick off the new year. We ring in the new year with more Syracuse topics because it never ends. I know, Carter, you and I back in the summer were saying, well, one thing about Syracuse athletics is it gives us stuff to talk about even during very dull periods. This isn't a dull period as the ball just dropped and we ring in a new year. Carter, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too, Cam. I, I know neither of us had very exciting New Year's Eves. We, we talked about that a little bit, but... You know, we have had some Syracuse sports topics to think about and talk about over the last couple of weeks, maybe even just singular week. So we're going to dive into that here very shortly. And that's why we have a Fizz Five. And it's really exciting that we're getting into the new year because we still got to recap that football bowl game with a lot of basketball to talk about. Syracuse just picking up a win over Boston College. So without further ado, Carter Bainbridge to my left. I'm Cameron Ezer. Let's get things started with topic number one. Number one. Topping number one, and it has to be about the bowl game. The Pinstripe Bowl, Syracuse 2-0 and in the Bronx, dating back to when the bowl game started back in 2010. So 12 seasons of the Pinstripe Bowl, and Syracuse has been in a quarter of them. And now Syracuse has an L in the Pinstripe Bowl, a 28-20 to loss to Minnesota in a game that was plagued by a lot of the inconsistencies we saw from Syracuse during the season. And SU losers of six of their last seven games, and unfortunately not bowl game winners as they were back in 2018. Uh, Carter, your thoughts on the game and how you think it impacts Syracuse heading into the offseason? My reaction to this bowl game and the result was a surprising amount of indifference because this SU team had already lost me down the stretch of the regular season. They had already lost the game. All I was waiting for was the result to come in. The the picks on the crystal ball on the Fizz were unanimous. Everyone picked Syracuse to lose, and I think everybody picked them to lose by more than one score. I did as well. I was on the Fizz coverage for this game, so I was on Twitter. I did the article. We had the Twitter space post-game, and I think a lot of people shared my sentiment because we didn't have any people come in and speak up like we have for some of the basketball team losses or even some of the football losses during the regular season. I think people knew what was going to happen. Syracuse entered this bowl game with no Sean Tucker, no Matthew Bergeron, and no Michael Jones. All those guys are going to the draft, of course, and, and they've got a lot of good football ahead of them. So hats off to them for all they've done. But those are main contributors. You don't, I mean, these are your starters, your running back, your left tackle, and your middle linebacker, some gigantic pieces on this team. Then you look up and down the team, they've got a year's worth of injuries on top of that. Stefan Thompson played... 10 snaps of football this season. I mean, went down against Louisville. Garrett Williams, even if he hadn't gotten hurt, he probably would have been one of those NFL guys too who would have opted out and not played. And then on top of that, you have a third layer of the transfers. Jihad Carter, Deuce Chestnut, even Courtney Jackson, who didn't have a great big, huge role this season. At, at minimum, you're losing depth. 
at worst, you're losing starters like Carter and, and Chestnut. So you're down a ton of guys from the opening day lineup. I mean, there's only a few more recognizable pieces on this team from Schrader to Aronde Gadsden and, and Marlo Wax are basically an Okachukwu basically on the defensive line are your, are your last couple guys. Who are you fooling? If you go up there and you talk about what a good chance you have to beat Minnesota without all of those names, a big, huge, growling Big Ten team with an offensive line that eats its Wheaties and weighs about 330 pounds a piece, has 100 pounds per guy on SU's defensive line, the better team won the pinstripe bowl. Say what you want about Garrett Schrader's pick six, which was undoubtedly the biggest play of that game, obliterated the momentum that Syracuse had at that point, but Minnesota was going to win the game and could have won this game by more points. If it had just kept Mo Ibrahim in the game, he didn't play the whole second half. He just got his record and then dipped out after about five yards of carry. You know, I thought, I thought Minnesota looked pretty effortless in this game. No Ibrahim for the second half, but it didn't really matter. Minnesota was the better team. They were built to last this late in the year. And if this bowl really got you mad, I think you're either, a real victim of hype or you're like, you know, John Wildhack's son decked out in full okay. uniform, you know, prancing down the sideline. Although that being said, I don't think this changes very much for how Syracuse, the bowl game anyway, for how Syracuse goes into this off season, you know, it can now advertise a winning season at minimum to transfers or whoever. Um, but nothing changes for Dino Babers. You know, he had a winning year. Excuse me. And he wasn't going to be fired anyway, unless he went, you know, 0 and 12. I do think that the the BC win and the fact that SU still played hard in the bowl, I mean, you can't lose that down to its fourth string at a couple positions. I mean, you look at like the defense, the names on the defense from Caden Bailey to I didn't even I Carter, I didn't know who that was when I was watching <laughs> to, back the highlights. Exactly. I mean, they're talking about guys like Quan Peterson and <laughs> Donovan Brown. I mean, these guys, they never they didn't even play in like the Wagner game. I mean, these are like new faces on the defense, but they still put up a pretty good showing against a Minnesota team that had its well, its original starting quarterback, and then Ibrahim and four of its offensive linemen it had most of its guys. That's a good sign. I, I think generally that that's a positive to take away into the offseason. You had a winning record. You played Minnesota decently well in the bowl game. You didn't get embarrassed. That is a plus for Dino Babers. I don't really care if anybody has anything to argue about that point. Garrett Schrader ran for a couple touchdowns. He threw 51 passes. Garrett Schrader in no game, in no game imaginable, unless Sean Tucker gets drafted and LaQuint Allen goes down and you have to recruit Donovan Brown to play offense and run the ball. In no way in heck should Garrett Schrader be throwing 51 passes, but he did. And he found a good amount of receivers. I mean, Aranda had seven catches. Devon had seven catches. Uh, a Trevor had a couple catches here and there. Damian Alford had more than one catch for probably the first time in his entire life that didn't go for 50 yards. LaQuint Allen had 11 receptions. He had 15 carries. So in terms of the scheming, 
it made no sense why Garrett Schrader was throwing 51 passes. I think that's the biggest concern that anyone should have. There's a reason he threw that pick six. It was inevitable when you allow a two-dimensional quarterback who ran in both touchdowns to also throw 51 passes. I mean, 32 completions for him. He can put his feet up and have a pina colada uh, in, a, in a Hawaii Bowl next year, knowing that he threw 32 completed passes in a game. I, I, I don't have much of a concern with them losing this game. Uh, as much as it would have been nice going into the offseason saying, okay, we're bowl victors and we go into next season with a crown. And I know, Carter, we've been talking a lot uh, on Fizz 5 about a successful season for Syracuse is winning a bowl game and they didn't do it. But this game, I, I don't think was that indicative of what we've seen all year from Syracuse because I don't think there was one moment that you can point out and say, well, that's very Syracuse of them, right? You win the first six games, lose the next five. It seems like Garrett Schrader's the hero, and then everyone wants Garrett Schrader gone, and then Sean Tucker's there, and then he's not. So I think the biggest takeaway from this game, and I'll wrap up my soliloquy in a in a nice bow uh, in the you know in the hol- spirit of the holiday season, I'll say LaQuint Allen was the was the guy that you look at and say, okay, coming out of this bowl game, I'm very happy being a Syracuse fan. Catching balls out of the uh, out of the backfield, running with just, I mean, uh, it, it seemed like he was running as Sean Tucker was last year with no care of anyone in his way against a Minnesota team that's one of the best defenses in the nation. So yes, it stinks to lose the bowl game. It wasn't a successful season because he didn't win it. But if there's one main takeaway and one positive takeaway, I would say at least Garrett Schrader, he completed 32 passes. That's something of note. If he can be more efficient in those games, that's great. But LaQuint Allen was easily the biggest positive takeaway. And a guy that I think could be in the Syracuse program for the next three years and be as efficient as Sean Tucker. Because Sean Tucker came out of the weeds. I think LaQuint Allen can too. So yeah, not uh, not as much of a bummer that they lost the bowl game because like you said, all of us predicted that they would. I was shocked by the close score line. Garrett Schrader needs to clean up the turnovers. And I, I, I don't know about you, Carter, but LaQuint Allen was a big positive for me. He was. And I think Schrader throwing a lot of passes. So that that attempts mark that you said, over 50, it's easily set a Syracuse career high for him. He had never even thrown 40 passes in a game in a Syracuse uniform, and he threw over 50 in this game. He was bound to eventually make that mistake. He only threw eight interceptions this season. Three of them were pick sixes. So when he did make mistakes, they were costly. I think those are some speed bumps in the road for Jason Beck as the new offensive coordinator. You know, I think um, Nick Monroe got a little trial run as defensive coordinator, but Rocky Long is now here. He's about to take that job. Beck, I think, is a little safer because you saw how the offense worked this year with Robert and I. You want that to continue with a guy who came along from Virginia with an eye as kind of a package deal. I, I liked, in general, what Jason Beck brought to the table in that bowl, especially against such a good defense. Minnesota came into that game third in the nation in points allowed. I mean, they were dominant on the uh, defensive end. And you're right, LaQuint Allen had a really good game, almost 100 yards rushing, and he caught 11 passes in the pinstripe bowl more than any other player on SU. LaQuint Allen might be a better receiver out of the backfield than Sean Tucker ever was. I agree. <laughs> for, for all that Tucker did on the ground, he was never that big a factor in the passing game. You know, this year he would catch screen passes, motioning out of the backfield, but he was not a 
towards the sticks type of receiving threat. Like Quint Allen was that. He was catching passes middle of the field, check downs, design routes. I think that he offers a versatility that you're right, should have people very excited, not only for next season, but for as long as he's here in Orange. And we'll see what comes to fruition with a lot of uh, guys, of course, entering the transfer portal and some going to the NFL draft and transfers uh, transfers and recruits coming in. You can check out our website, theorangefizz.com, and look at all of our football recruiting articles. I put one up about game changers. I think that's one uh, one to read because if you're wondering who could be the big names alongside Eloquent Allen, those could be uh, those could be the names to watch out for. Okay, enough about football. Let's head into basketball. A game against BC on New Year's Eve, a big W for Syracuse. We'll break that one down in topic number two. Number two, Syracuse and Boston College. SU had won eight straight over BC dating back to 2014. And Carter, I don't know if you remember that 2014 year where SU was 25 and 0 and ended up losing that 26th game. And as the number one team in the country, that really hurt the uh, the whole record pedigree. But Syracuse takes down Boston College for the ninth time in a row, ninth straight time in the Dome as well, 79-65 the final. Three players in double figures, Benny Williams, Judah Mintz, and Joe Girard, not to mention all above 16 points. But what are your biggest takeaways and what's your uh, instant reaction from that game? Well, you know, BC has been an annuity that hasn't stopped paying for almost uh, 10 years at this point. So you can't take a, a gigantic amount of stock from the Eagles as you could maybe from another ACC team or as we get further into conference play. SU's now just 2-1 and one in the ACC. But Syracuse, the first thing that I thought of when I was watching this was that SU finally got off to a good start in a game and kept it going through the first half. I mean, SU led by 9 at halftime. That's big. After bad starts against like Monmouth and uh, Oakland for the first 10 minutes or so, Georgetown was a bad one. The Pitt game, they got off to a, a rocky start and, and never quite recovered. That's a, a good thing to turn the page on if it stops becoming a trend for Syracuse as we get into the post-holiday break slate because the Orange played Pitt on the 21st if memory serves. I mean, right there, 20th, 21st. I believe it was the 21st. Yeah, 20th, 20th. 20th, rather. And and then they have the big gap between then and the New Year's Eve game against BC. So you have a chance to get some things right. And for Syracuse, getting off to more consistent starts without messing around for the first 15, 20 minutes of a game is big because no matter what team you play, if you let them hang in, they can beat you. You know, look at teams like Colgate and Bryant. They did that. In, in more dominant fashion. So that to me was the first plus. And then the takeaway that I have that, that, you know, has been established, but to me, it was what I thought of when I watched and ended the game. And I thought, man, this is more true now than ever is that it is clear that this team only consistently goes when Joe Girard is on. And he was really on against BC eight of 19 for 24 points you maybe want a little bit more efficiency from from the floor, but 24 points is is what you want from him, a higher-end game for him. He's a pure and a simple shooter, and it's challenging to beat SU when he commands the attention and is really hot 
from start to finish in an outing because you look at what he frees up on the offensive end. Judah Mintz, 8 of 15 in this game for 18 points. He's a wizard in transition. He weaves through traffic and, and does all his his uh, work in the lane. Jesse Edwards had 10 and 8 in this game, which is solid for him. And then Benny Williams. We'll have more on him to say later, but he had a double-double in this game, which might be a testament to just him putting in a little more effort. But when the offensive uh, you know, structure frees up for him a little bit, we see that he can be a little more ambitious than just sitting at the elbow and waiting for shots. So, you know, the attention that a good Joe Girard gets and dictates from opposing defenses is important. As, as we get into conference play, that's your X factor, what he does day in and day out. When I went to the post-game press conference with Jim Beheim, of course, his underlying uh, message was the criticism that his forward still can't grab rebounds, aside from Benny Williams, because he had 11 rebounds. And, and as criticism built in the post-game press conference, it kind of laid a, um, a seed in my mind about what I saw in that game. I was in the Dome, and what stood out was that 12-0 run by Boston College to lead 49-40, or sorry, it was uh, 51-49. to At one point, it was 49-48. It went back and forth after that 12-0 Boston College run. A lot of inconsistency showed, and you're right. Joe Girard goes, Syracuse goes. They're 8-1 and one when JG3 scores above 15 points. Want to fix a stat? I said there are four players in double figures because Jesse Edwards needed to get to that 10-point threshold, and he found it. Yeah, I mean... Uh, there were a lot of inconsistencies in this game as much as you say that uh, Syracuse kept the lead and got off to a pretty good start from you know a wire to wire I actually don't agree with that um, there were points in the game where SU was so reliant on Joe Girard and the substitutions would take Judamins out of the game and when Judamins was in the game JG3 because he was hot would play the one and that would take pressure, yes, off of Judah Mintz, but it would also take the ball out of his hands and make him more of a defensive option. There was a one substitution where you bring in John Bullajac, and then Malik Brown was in the game, and Samir Torrance, there wasn't even a, a good shooter on the floor when Joe took a seat. I, I mean, I, I thought the substitutions were a bit uneasy at times, but what Syracuse showed is they're finally meshing and gelling, as an experienced team, which obviously you couldn't say at the start of the season because you had six freshmen and one transfer, seven new players, and all of a sudden now turn of the year, and this team looks a bit more whole than they did at the beginning of the season. Judah Mintz had himself a game. Joe has to be the leading scorer, and they found their third guy, and it wasn't Jesse Edwards. Jesse Edwards can't be your third guy in terms of scoring, right? He is your defensive threat. If you can bring in Justin Taylor or Benny Williams, and I'll talk more about Justin Taylor later, but you bring in a Benny Williams and he can score 14, 15, 16, that is your third offensive threat. So what I learned from this game is that the inconsistencies are still there. Syracuse still struggles to grab rebounds against taller, more physical guys. In the zone, they they uh, they press off of players. Makai Ashton Lankford at two points was just wide open for three when Joe was just staring right at him. So a bit lackadaisical on the defensive end. But I'm seeing this team gel and mesh a little more. And that's what you like as a Syracuse fan. You go into 2023 against tougher ACC opponents. And I don't think you're going to have the same inconsistencies that you saw against Bryant 
and Colgate. They're not as susceptible to giving up the three ball. The defense looks a little better and the offense looks electric. I, I liked the ball movement. Overall, it was a big win in showing me that this team down the stretch can act as a team. Justin Taylor hit two threes. He hasn't hit a three in the last four games. So it was a lot of good. Yes, there were inconsistencies that Jim Bayon can point out, but I mean, he's in his 47th year, Carter. I think he can point out a lot of inconsistencies because that's his mantra at this point. But I saw a lot of good in terms of this team gelling together, letting Joe Cook, letting Jesse grab the rebounds, finding a third scoring option, and at times giving Judah the ball to drive to the rim, but not allowing him to take up too much of the offensive scheme. So with that, let's head into topic number three, where we talk a little more about this basketball team. I said that third option, and Carter, I have a bit of a hot take for some on the other side. Let's head to topic number three. Number three. Topic number three revolves around this Syracuse men's basketball team. 11 players saw the floor in the first half. That is, I mean, imagine, Carter, imagine saying that last year. Imagine, I don't think Syracuse had 11 good players on the roster. I don't think Syracuse had eight good players on their roster last year. I don't think Syracuse had made 11 substitutions by this point last <laughs> season. This is, Carter, this was the first half. So my question that I pose to you is with a guy like Chris Bell struggling, and there's a reason I didn't mention Chris Bell in my reaction to the 79 to 65 win Syracuse over Boston College, also to mention shooting 48% from the field, 50% from three, but that's neither here nor there, nor there. But because Chris Bell is struggling, I don't even want to pose this to you as should a bench piece be starting for Syracuse? Do you think Chris Bell should be starting? Do you think someone else should be starting off the bench? Because I don't know. To me, this this starting unit at times just seems very lackluster. Yeah, I, I agree with that because I, I don't know at this point how productive it is for Chris Bell to start every day, play 10 minutes, and then get yanked. I mean, it's just – it doesn't seem like it's a, it's a very productive use of the beginning of the game. Maybe that fits into the slow starts we've seen from Syracuse, and we talked a little bit about that earlier in this Viz 5. But I wrote an article about this on the Fizz a little while ago that I'll I'll continue to back up with a caveat so people th don't think I'm switching up a week after the fact. Is this the Believe in Chris Bell article? No, I, that wasn't oh. me. But oh. I did write about Chris Bell, and I also wrote about some other guys too. At the time, I said that Malik Brown should probably start over Benny Williams at forward. Whoa. Because at, right at the time, I did say that. And I'll l listen. So I said that at the time after watching Brown play in the pit game and he was on such a hot streak, shooting very efficiently, rebounding and really showing a willingness to kind of get down and dirty in the lane and and, um, you know, mix it up with guys who are either his size or bigger. I just wasn't seeing that from from Benny Williams up to that point in the season. And you know, we watched him a little bit last year and he's obviously starting this year, but you know, Benny Williams up until the BC game had been inconsistent and oftentimes looked like a guy who was sort of dreading his own struggle. Like he was waiting for a mistake to happen. And then as soon as it did, the shoulders slump and he's pulling elbows back and hitting guys after he's, you know, getting up off the floor and the, the body language and the vibes were just bad with Benny Williams. I, I had to feel for him a little bit. Although, here's the thing. 
I think that Benny showed a lot against BC and, and seemed to figure something out. And I, I don't think it was just because, oh, the other guys were shooting well on the offensive end and he just capitalized on chances. I think that Williams showed a lot of tenacity and effort that, that had been missing beforehand. You know, Bayheim said that he considers this Williams's freshman year, quote unquote, because, you know, last year was kind of a lost cause. Maybe he Which really wasn't ready. I do too. I, I listen, I have, I could say more things about that. And, you know, I think that there are more questions that need to be asked to Bayheim in that case for, for why Williams was struggling so much last year, but that's neither here nor there, you know, fairly or not, you know, if this was Benny's true kind of real show off of capability against BC, it's not the greatest competition in the world. And the rest of the team was playing pretty well, but I don't think Brown can start over Williams. I mean, for a couple reasons that I'm sure you'll you'll say, Cam, but unfortunately can't start over him right now because Williams is just playing too well. He he played too well against BC and showed too much intriguing stuff to where you've got to try to bottle that and ride it out for as long as you can. Um, I also unfortunately think you, you can't play Brown over Chris Bell because it's just positionally you need more scoring out of where Chris Bell plays because as bad as Bell has been, you still need the the offense. And I I don't think Brown right now is versatile enough. There's only so many times I can listen to Jim Boeheim say, well, he's not ready. He's not ready. You know, we all watch the team. We analyze the team. You know, I, I had struggled to believe that at times, but the Chris Bell problems have been wild. You know, there's a there's a stat that I wrote about that I looked up again today. So in the ACC, there's 215 players who have checked into a game, played at least once for any amount of time. You know, you get down into the real deep bench guys at the bottom and, and the stars at the top. But if you sort it by total rebounds, Chris Bell at this point in the season is putting up 1.4 rebounds per game. He's played 14 games. He started every one for Syracuse. In the conference, there are only five guys who are putting up fewer rebounds per game than he is and who have played 14 or more games. And Chris Bell has more minutes than any of them. We're talking about guys like Chaz Kelly for Boston College, Anthony Walker of Miami, Tom House down at Florida State. You know, a couple of them are guards. Some of them are forwards. Most of them are guards. Chris Bell's a forward. The position demands more rebounding, and he is just not doing it for one reason or another. Beheim keeps talking about it, and he keeps challenging him, and he keeps not responding. You know, all the way back to, like, the Lehigh game, Beheim was talking about how he needs to rebound more, and he seems to get harsher every time he does it. We're all waiting for Bell to lift the tool out of his tool belt and show off that piece of his skill set, and whether he has it or not, he's not doing it, and, and that's the bottom line. I'm not sure that there's a bench piece that could start for Bell right now, but if there was that Beheim felt comfortable with, I'm sure he would have done it by now. Well, I think that Benny Williams snaring 11 rebounds in that win over Boston College helped Chris Bell's case of even fitting on this team because Chris Bell doesn't need seven, eight rebounds per game, right? You saw last year, Cole Swider was the main rebounder and then Jesse Edwards. It wasn't like Jimmy Beheim was racking up nine rebounds per game. But still, you have a viable option on the bench. Justin Taylor is a viable option. 
10 players saw the floor before Justin Taylor. And Syracuse was losing to Boston College and was abysmal offensively. That makes no sense. Justin Taylor is one of your premier scorers. He entered a really clutch time when Boston College took the lead in the second half. I think he was under 10 minutes remaining. And he hit two huge threes because he can do that. Like it's not, Chris Bell has shown he can't rebound. Justin Taylor can show he can score. So what is Jim Beheim looking at? It makes no sense to me. Justin Taylor should see the floor sooner. I was telling people before the game, Justin Taylor's first off the bench. He'll come in two and a half minutes in for Chris Bell, as he usually has. The 11th player on the floor, sixth player off the bench, you put in John Bullajac, who can't score to save his life, Malik Brown, who, Malik Brown's good, but he's not a scoring threat outside of two feet away from the basket. You put in those guys when you were scoring 12, 13 points on Boston College. It was like 13-8 BC, 10 minutes in. Like this team couldn't score and you put in non-scoring threats. So that is my little rant on why Justin Taylor didn't go into the game earlier. I think he should be in the starting five. He's shown he can score. And if Benny Williams can grab seven, eight rebounds, that is your second rebounding threat alongside Jesse Edwards. And then you have scoring threats from the perimeter because Benny Williams can show he can shoot, but that's a mid-range guy. Jesse Edwards is your paint guy. Judamitz will drive to the rim. And then Joe is your, I'll command the ball and find my own shot. And JT is your spot-up shooter. That's a perfect starting five. And it makes no sense to me why Chris Bell can't be a part of that second rotation with Samir Torrance, with Malik Brown, even with Aquitier Copeland. Keep Joe out there. And then Bell can be your spot-up shooter in the second lineup against uh, the team's second team, like the the opposing team's second group. I think where Benny Williams benefited last year, which is an even which is an odd thing to say, is he came off the bench, so he kind of got the harsh reality of where he was. Chris Bell is getting the harsh reality when he's sitting on the bench for the last 30 minutes of the game. Like, give him some substantial minutes. Bring him off the bench against the opposing team's second group who's not as good, of course, as their first lineup, the starting lineup. And maybe it's a substitution for substitution, eye for an eye. When Boston College brings in a Chas Kelly, you bring in Chris Bell, backup for a backup. And then Chris Bell can work with that second group. It just makes no sense. He's playing a couple minutes, and he clearly isn't meshing with the first group as much as Justin Taylor is. The game has shifted where the starting five isn't the closing five, and I'm completely fine with that. But in this instance... Chris Bell is barely even getting time under 10 minutes of each half unless he plays well. You can't judge a a player off if he plays well every single – they're going to have inconsistencies. Joe didn't score earlier this year in a game. First time in, what, 47 games in his career. Like, it happens. But you're not allowing Chris Bell and giving him that opportunity to have a good outing or a great outing – because you're playing him in a in a starting five that he doesn't mesh with and against players that are substantially better than him and more experienced than him. Start Justin Taylor. That's my plea. Please and thank you. I will write an article about it on theorangefizz.com because I've been saying it for a while and it's going up there. I've just been prepping all of my arguments because this game was, to me, the nail in the coffin. That's BCSU Syracuse 79 to 65 winners. And now first two conference wins or first two conference win month of December. Are they won two conference games in the month of December? 
First time that's happened since 1998. How about that? That's kind of cool. Little tidbit. I know, isn't that crazy? Well, it's because usually they don't play two conference games in the month of December. And what's even cooler is Alan Griffin was a player back in 1998 and not an assistant coach. So if you ever want tidbits, you know where to find me. You know where to find Fizz 5. Okay, we're going to move on to topic number four. We're staying in basketball, but going the recruiting route. Let's head to topic number four. Number four. Topic number four time, basketball recruiting. Let's make this quick, Carter, because I don't have much to say uh, rather than just having disdain about this recruiting for SU basketball. Elliot Cadeau, he's a four-star, right? Or was he high five? He is it was five, high five, yeah. High five. It's interesting because last year I thought Judah Mintz was a high four borderline five-star, and they dro- like the drop is insane. They'll get him at 1.25th in, in his class and then all of a sudden drop to 35 after you know two bad games. Elliot Cadeau, five-star guard, picked North Carolina over Syracuse. I know that there was a lot of hype around um, Adam Weitzman offering him a seven-figure NIL deal that focused on philanthropy. Well, he doesn't take it. So, Carter, in the grand scheme of things, what does this mean for Syracuse recruiting in 2024? Because, you know, 2023 is not going too well. Not much. I think at this point, you know, it's it's a struggle to make grand conclusions about Syracuse recruiting in the early stages. SU is approaching this recruiting class like it did last year. That may be a problem considering that Syracuse didn't get even one commit in the last class. But the way the last one began was that Syracuse kind of kicked the tires on the best guys in the class, the top guys in the class. You know, I remember... We did an article back in the day on, you know, Aiden Holloway, a guard, and and there were a couple other pieces who ended up elsewhere. But Syracuse is just doing its due diligence on some of the top talent. I mean, Elliot Cadeau, six one guard, he was the top guard in this year's class according to twenty four seven Sports. And on the twenty eighth of December, he did pick UNC over Syracuse and Kansas and Texas and a couple others who made the final six, including Louisville somehow. Um, <laughs> I, I don't, I'm not really sure what else to say Those about two that wins one, are but, enticing. Those right, two he could be enticing. he could be down there hanging with Kamari Lands, <clears throat> but despite, like you said, a hefty NIL deal on the table from Adam Weitzman, who, in case you don't know who that is, he's a scrap metal magnate turned SU quote unquote super fan who invites celebrities to games in the dome, like. Jimmy Fallon, recently a couple of the Buffalo Bills were there for a game. He's the guy who makes that happen. And he did offer Cadeau, well, I'm not sure directly offers the right phrase, but he proposed an ideal to his camp that did focus on philanthropy. That, to me, is the much more interesting part of this compared to you know what Cadeau chose to do because top talent not picking Syracuse is not a, a groundbreaking thing lately but what Weitzman did here I think changes a little bit in the way we are supposed to cover and look at Syracuse recruiting because Weitzman's now a player who's involved in this for better or for worse or for nothing you know these things he talks about could never amount to anything but people on Twitter have been hounding him and insulting him that (laughs) All he does with the money that he has 
is bring celebrities to the dome who get on the jumbotron once and clap their hands a little bit. And as pleasant as that is, it doesn't really affect with the way the team is going. But Weitzman, I guess, here is putting his money where his mouth is. And you can be sure, even though it wasn't successful this time, that it won't be the last time he does this for top recruits. And what this means for me is that Q's recruiting now has structure to its NIL. I mean, if you recall, back in the 22 class that brought all the recruits here, like Justin Taylor, Quidier Copeland, Malik Brown, even Judah Mintz late in that cycle, Kamari Lands, the now Louisville player, was a part of that. And he decommitted when he thought to himself, man, I really didn't have NIL as a part of my recruiting pitch whatsoever. And he then wanted to explore other options for wherever that would take him. And I guess Louisville was the one who stepped in and said, Hey, we have opportunities here, you know, whatever they may be, if that entices you come aboard. And he did Syracuse looked kind of decrepit in that moment that it didn't have any real feel for NIL. I know Jim Beheim wasn't a fan of it at first, but there's, you know, the collective in place now, the 315 Foundation that he said verbatim, he called it for fans, your chance to get involved with recruiting. You know, he's come around on it, maybe begrudgingly. But, you know, if you're Syracuse and you're serious about getting top talent, you must pay attention to that now. And, and I think, like, having a guy like Weitzman, it doesn't really matter what you think of him, but he now plays a role in this. So Elliot Cadell not coming aboard doesn't break my heart. He's a good player, and he, he may be a thorn in Syracuse's side at UNC, but he won't be the only good player over there with the Tar Heels. However, the more intriguing thing to me about this recruiting cycle for Cadell was that Weitzman was a part of it. He's now a player in recruiting. He's shown that he'll offer an NIL opportunity or propose it to players to maybe come in. That is something to keep your eye on as we get into kind of the 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 prime of the nil recruiting era i 100 percent agree with you um i i, I don't think cadeau was ever coming to syracuse <laughs> no offense to syracuse basketball but i mean you're right you look at the top dogs of of the recruiting class and you look at the top 20 and none of them are recruited or are going to syracuse last player that was even remotely close was darius Baisley or dior johnson and both went elsewhere so, yeah, I mean, the, the biggest play in this is the Adam Weitzman deal. I don't have any concern with him offering what he offered. Now, I know that I had a bit of concern early on when he said, you know, football would also be a part of He said that, right? Football would also be a part of this. Or was it just basketball? I believe you talking about Weitzman. He said Weitzman. that it was it would be an athlete. Yeah. Maybe one per sport, if I recall. So the one per sport thing is interesting because I, I don't think you can, unless it's a quarterback, right? And it's not like Syracuse is great at recruiting quarterbacks. There's not really one player that can make the biggest difference in the world. I mean, look at Sean Tucker at a groundbreaking year last year and Syracuse failed to make a bowl game. So uh, basketball is, is integral in Weitzman's money and the philanthropy and what NIL can offer to pay off because one player in basketball can make all the difference. So not a lot of, I was a little concerned early on about the one player per sport. I'd rather him be all in on basketball where you have a couple players, you know what I mean? Especially with UNC and Duke and how good those programs are. Yeah. So, and, and I have it here. It was, it was 1 million per year 
for one five-star football player and one five-star basketball player to represent entities that he had an interest in. Yeah. I I don't know. It's a lot uh, to also, you say he's a big player, right? Cause he offered the seven figure deal, but look more at the drop off, right? If you're the player that makes the seven figure deal and then everyone below you, right? Like, why would you come to Syracuse? Like imagine the six freshmen Judah Mintz gets that deal. What do you think Justin Taylor, Chris Bell? I mean, Chris Bell was close in uh, uh, on many recruiting boards was what probably the closest to Judah Mintz in terms of, in terms of the talent. So, I mean, I just think that it also creates some sort of discrepancy between the top dog and now like the bottom feeders, even though they're not bottom feeders. Yes. He's a big player in the Syracuse market. He's huge for Syracuse basketball and Syracuse football, but I don't really take that much stock in either him offering the deal or Elliot Cadeau choosing to go to North Carolina. Cadeau should go to North Carolina. He'll get more looks there. He'll have a better experience there. He will be their mainstay. I think Syracuse right now is in a position where the next couple of recruiting classes don't really matter. So that's why I don't think Weitzman money, Weitzman's money means that much. Because you bring in a five-star, you pay him seven figures. If Judah Mintz doesn't go to the NBA, if I'm Judah Mintz, I transfer. Like, why Why am I, you know, belittling myself to a guy that's making seven figures that might be a little better than me? So I also think it creates a little bit of a, a, a little bit of, a, a, I don't even know the exact word for it. I, I just, I, I feel like between teammates, there could be a bit of a disconnect where money is the reason you're going, which NIL, that was never the intention. I know that that's now what players are doing, but a lot of the times you go because you like the situation and the opportunity. Now, if you go to Syracuse for the seven-figure deal, no offense, everyone will look at you and say, well, you came to Syracuse because of the seven-figure deal. So I also think it it creates a, a bit of disconnect between teammates. And I don't know, the more I can criticize it, I just think that I'll look at it and think of it as a benefit when it actually happens, right? Like it hasn't happened yet. And I don't think it's going to happen for the next couple of years. Cause I don't think SU is recruiting a five-star in the next two years. Yeah. It, it's an aggressive and a, and a risky proposition for both Weitzman and any player, because you're right. It, it is more complex than just you, you off offer a guy an opportunity to come in. He does it and earns money and is immediately a star and everything is great. Boy, if you gave Chris Bell an NIL deal and he was playing 10 minutes a game his freshman year and his teammates knew it and the fans knew it, oh my goodness. I I, I can't even imagine not only just the pressure on him and what he would be feeling, but just the acrimony that would be taking place among all the fans and and general situation would be terrible. So yeah, I, 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 uh, I think this was a mutually beneficial thing that Cadeau chose not to come here because he would be playing beside Judah Mintz who didn't have that opportunity. This being next year, right? When Joe Girard's not here, but there's no guarantee it would work out. And he's getting into a good situation in North Carolina where he can really show his stuff. So that sort of NIL deal is not playing a part in what Syracuse is doing right now, but it it is maybe a little noteworthy that this is the first big time deal that someone around the city proposed to a player 
Yeah, and it will be the only big time deal. You're not getting anything else up here other than local businesses, which is not a bad thing, but you're not making the seven figures uh, uh, thanks to local businesses. So unless you want to be like Buddy Beheim and you work the local businesses and, and, and promote them and support them, I mean, you're not coming to Syracuse for NIL. So with recruiting, I think focus more on 2023, see what happens. Maybe, yes, you can get one player. If not, be happy that you had six freshmen the year before. Okay, wrapping things up. Again, it's the new year, so happy new year to everyone. So we'll break down our New Year's resolutions for Syracuse men's basketball now we're, that we're in the thick of the season. One for Bayheim, one for the players. We'll see what Carter and I hand out on the other side. Topic number five, let's go. Number five. Topic number five, New Year's resolutions. Perfect time of the year to do this. Carter, what are your New Year's resolutions for this 9-5 and five and 2-1 and one in-conference Syracuse men's basketball team? Well, funny you should ask. Uh, I have one for both Jim Beheim and for a player. For Jim Beheim, my New Year's resolution, what I would advise, is that he gets bold with his lineup at times and we talked about this earlier in the uh in the call so be bolder with your lineup have that be your 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 page turn into 2023 and what you should work on you know chris bell nice shot but jim Beheim has griped about his rebounding after by my count six different games this year and it is an incessant topic of complaint for him if this is such a problem and let's face it it is kind of an issue Make a change. Roll the dice with someone else. I mean, the whole time that we have been at Syracuse, Jim Beheim has rolled, barring an injury, with the same starting five every game. It didn't matter that Marek Dolajai was not that big to play the five, but boy, he got trotted out there, and he might have been the best option, but you had some bigger bodies who you maybe could have seasoned a little more to play it. He wasn't going to make that change. Last year... Joe Girard had some trouble at times, and he did when Kadari Richmond was here. But boy, Richmond wasn't about to start over Joe Girard. And, you know, a tournament berth later, maybe that strategy was a good one for Bayheim. But other years, you'll never know if something like that would have made a difference. You know, Justin Taylor, like you said, has a 25-point game to his credit, right? He he exploded against Bryant. And during the times he's come in and played more sparingly, he's been pretty efficient with his shots. You know, even even Quadir Copeland had a really good relief effort against Pitt, uh, and he manned a forward spot that is foreign to him as a guard. I mean, that was a jarring sight, but he made the most of that opportunity. Freshen it up a little bit. Throw some people in there. And uh, if someone doesn't respond to a challenge and you need more against some better ACC teams coming up, make some changes, you know, do something that may not be in your comfort zone, but that could make a difference if it works out. And then for a player, this is a more recent thing, recency bias and full effect here. But for Benny Williams, New Year's resolution is just do whatever it was you did before the BC game and make that your routine. Do it as long as you can, superstitious or not, because I've been as harsh on Benny as anyone at the Fizz, but his game against BC was very strong. Double-double, 16 points, 11 rebounds, set season highs in, in made field goals and boards and blocks as well. He had three of those. He was an impactful player on both ends of the court, and that's great 
for a guy who's been inconsistent at times, you know, looks like his struggles are getting on him sometimes, but that's a major performance. You know, build on that as best you can. Eat the same cereal. Tie your shoes the same way. That's your resolution is stick with what's working, whatever it was that worked for you at the BC game. Because whatever he had that day, whatever he did that day, it worked. We hadn't seen that sort of play from him. So try and bottle that up as best you can and, and hang on to it for as long as possible. My New Year's resolution as a whole for the Syracuse basketball team, learn how to make a darn three. I mean, eight of 16, 50% is great, right? And should you be taking more? I'm not here to argue that because I'm not the coach that watches these guys shoot in practice. Joe is your main shooter. Justin barely plays, so it's not like he can make five, six threes. Judah isn't a three-point shooter. He's like six of 30 on the year. Jesse, if he takes a three, he'll be yanked for the rest of the season, right? I mean, Chris Bell doesn't play enough to even get a look at a three because he doesn't like to look at the rim when he's close to the paint, but make a darn three. And I and this is not about the 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 percentage because the percentage has been fine for Syracuse, right? They're, they're being uh, patient. They're not taking as many threes as they did last year because they realize they're not a team that has a lot of three point shooting prowess. But come on, you're going into an ACC in which Boston College just exposed that your philosophy of downhill drives to the rim can only work for so long when you're up against a big body that's 230 pounds and then another seven footer, right? If you start making threes, then that becomes some sort of decoy that allows a Judah Mintz to easily get to the rim, that allows a Benny Williams to get his mid-range jumper. So eight of 16 is fine against Boston College, but how about this for a stat? 14 games in, Syracuse has never made more than eight threes in a single game. Yes, you can allot that to or credit that to patience and the fact that this team is realizing that their identity is not the three-point shot. Last year, 18 of 33 games over 10 threes. And again, I'm not I'm not faulting Syracuse's identity this year. They've won nine games without having to shoot a lot of threes. But you're so susceptible to giving up threes. Wait until you face the best of the best in the ACC. You're going to need to make threes. So take more. I, I was hoping that this portion of the season, they realized their philosophy, identity, and they veered off the beaten path a little bit. Make a couple threes here and there, even though that's not your identity. Well, that can be huge when North Carolina or Duke runs into the dome because those teams aren't scoring 65 points. They're going to score 80. And unfortunately, straight line drives won't be as easy against the big bodies of the ACC. You need to turn it into more efficient possessions. Moving the ball is great, but kicking out to shooters is even better when you're struggling. It's happening against Pitt. Early on, Syracuse, really, it's not like they were playing an awful game. Shots just weren't falling, but driving to the rim just didn't work. And what they keep doing? They just kept driving to the rim because that's all they could do, right? So shoot some threes. I mean, find that philosophy that has been under the tutelage of Jim Beheim for the last 46 years, which is shooting the darn ball. Find your three-point shot, whether that's Justin Taylor, whether that's Chris Bell, Joe Girard. Judah Mintz needs to be taking a lot more threes. Samir Torrance took 2,500 shots per day in the summer because he didn't want Jim Beheim criticizing his three-point shot, and he's still missing every single three-point shot. Benny Williams, he looks a lot better from three. Stretch him out a bit more. 
I just think that drives, and this is what happened in the Illinois game, why Judimans was three of 16, drives often turn into flailing attempts lobbying for a foul. That's not going to work against the best of the best in the ACC and when tournament time rolls around. Find your three-point stroke, start making some more threes, taking some more threes so it opens up drives, and that is my New Year's resolution for Syracuse men's basketball. Shoot the darn three. That'll wrap things up here on Fizz 5. Happy New Year to everyone. We hope you enjoyed your New Year's Eve with the Syracuse basketball win, and we hope you enjoy 2023. We're going to bring you Fizz 5s throughout 2023, even when lacrosse season rolls around. You can check out our articles on theorangefizz.com. But for now, for Carter Bainbridge, I'm Cameron Ezer. This has been another edition of Fizz 5. Happy New Year, everyone, and we'll catch you next week. And that's your Fizz 5. Listen next week. Subscribe, rate, and review. This has been an Orange Fizz production.